If you have your Bibles, go with me to Jonah chapter 4. Jonah chapter 4. We'll be in 5 to the end. As we come to the end of Jonah, you know, I'm a bit, uh, a bit sad. Jonah's been, like, good. It's been, um, God has spoken to my own heart in many ways through the book of Jonah. Um, so thankful for what he's done. I've heard many times over the past few weeks this phrase. I think that sermon or that passage was for me. Uh, I enjoy hearing that as long as it's not in a negative tone. Uh, <laughs> uh, this, this, I, I've, I've said this to these people that have said this, and I just want to encourage them that uh, that's the work of the Spirit. I pray that the book of Jonah has really reshaped your worldview or continued to reshape your worldview. Uh, the way you view God's grace, I hope that that's changed over the past few weeks. I don't care where your view of God's grace was. Uh, seven, eight weeks ago, but I pray that it has changed over the past few weeks. I, I pray that your view of your own sin has changed, not even just particular sins, but your overall view of your own sin. I, I pray that your view of those sinning around you has changed, the way you look at them and the way you respond to them and I pray that the way you view those who don't yet know Christ, I pray that that has changed. That that is different now. I pray that the way you view God's interaction with the world and the details of this world, as well as the details of your life, I pray that that has changed. I pray that your worldview has changed. One of the things we've learned over this past few weeks is that we need to embrace God's call. We, call, we, we, we said that this, this place where we embrace God's call and, and in doing God's call is the place of His presence and grace. Anywhere else, that would be absent. At least to the extent to which He intends for it to be so. This magnificent, glorious God who you see in Jonah harnesses the, the forces of nature for the salvation not just of 120,000 Ninevites, but also for the single soul of Jonah. How kind. We have to ask the question, how kind, how glorious is this God? to do such a thing. As we come to the ending of Jonah here, 
I love, like, even this last line in the book. He says, How, And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? What is going on at the ending here in the book of Jonah? This book ends just really in such a perfect fitting, fantastic, funny, even breathtakingly beautiful and accurate way. Here at the end of Jonah, God, through I I believe the author Jonah, is going to wrap, hear me, the entire story up and at the same time tell us what the entire story has really been about. Now, we've looked at different themes in the book of Jonah, different issues in the book of Jonah, but here at the end, we're going to find out what was the whole thing at its very foundation about. Just like Jonah, you, me, all of us are always headed toward one place or the other. We're either headed towards Tarshish or we are headed towards Nineveh. Let me put that in different terms. Our hearts at any given moment, let me rephrase that, at every given moment, are either moving toward loving God more or resenting God more. Always. Right this very second, even as I speak, your heart is either moving toward, it's not just, I can just, towards resenting Him. I, it, there's no neutral. Moving, not just, I can just passively go by. It, it, it's moving in one direction or the other. Another way of saying this, or let me, let me, let me stop here actually and encourage you, do not presume upon the way your heart responded last week. Or the way your heart was responding to God yesterday. Meaning, don't just assume that just because your heart was moving towards loving God more yesterday, that it's going to move towards loving God more today. Indeed, it could be quite the opposite. So our hearts are moving towards loving God more or resenting God more. And at the end of this world, one group of people will love God forever, and one group will hate Him forever. One group will experience perpetual joy in God, and the other group will experience perpetual resentment towards God. And as we've learned in the book of Jonah, that God's grace will either make you angry or will lead you to worship. And let's not assume that it's always the case that His grace leads us to worship. Here's the question for today. What is it, at the very core of our existence, that when it comes to which direction I head today or in this very moment, right, towards loving God or towards resenting God, what is it at the very core that's at work, that's, that's, that's in the mix, that has an impact on ultimately which decision I make in this moment and ultimately will be for eternity? 
what impacts this moving towards loving God and moving towards resenting God. We talk about, as a church, root sin all the time. But what is it at the deepest root? Like, what's the, the, the foundation of those root sins? What's the deepest cause of our sins? Oh, we need God and His help to think through such a thing. Let's pray. Father, I pray that You would help us to think clearly, deeply, humbly about such a topic as the end of this book presents. For Your glory, God, and for our good. In Jesus' name, Amen. That is the eternal question. That is the question I think that Jonah ultimately answers. That the whole story, if you will, has been about. It's what we'll see here in the next few verses. Let's read in verse 5. I'm going to read a little bit, stop, talk, and we'll continue on as we go. Verse 5. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Let's stop here. So Jonah, here's what happened. Jonah, just to recount the story very briefly. Jonah goes to Nineveh with some measure of heart change, right? He was headed to Tarshish, but now he's headed towards Nineveh, and he has some measure of repentance and such going on we see in chapter 2. He proclaims the message to the Ninevites. They begin to change. God grants them repentance. And then ultimately God relents of destruction. But somewhere along the way, I imagine, speculation, but I imagine probably as the people start to experience the grace of God evidenced in their repentance, that Jonah was reminded now of why he didn't want to come to Nineveh. Remember, he says, God, I'm angry at you, and this is why, because I knew you were a God of compassion. That I knew that you would relent of this. and So somewhere along the way, though, in this story, Jonah finds the original anger and sin that he was indulging in and takes this practice up again. Jonah gets angry with God as God relents of destruction to the Ninevites. <clears throat> now, here we are, Jonah proceeds to build for himself this little mud and rock shack to the east of the city. We're not sure where this shack or this hut is located at. It just says to the east of the city. And, but we do know this is why does he set this little shack up to the east of the city? He sets it up in order to see if God will indeed bring destruction to what he perceived as this wicked city, even in the face of their repentance. That's crazy. I mean, just think about the absurdity of this. Jonah was in the belly of a whale or a fish. God delivers him. He goes, he presents God's saving plan to the Ninevites. And now he sits outside the city hoping, really, for destruction on the Ninevites. 
Before we go any further, I want to give you kind of two warning signs of, of Jonah, like of this root issue showing itself in Jonah. Two warning signs that we can look at to ourselves to see, am I in danger right now, this second, of this issue? The first one is this, quiet withdrawal from the company of others. Listen, I, I like to be alone. I prefer to be by myself. <laughs> like, there's a measure of that. As an introvert, like, I actually enjoy just me, my books, my office. Like, I that's like my place. So I'm not talking about like that kind of thing. I'm talking about. Jonah had just presented the saving plan to the Ninevites. They turned in repentance to God. And he withdraws from this now family of God to say, I hope God brings destruction on them. Just withdraw this. But it's not just a withdrawal so that I can go rest, so that I can go refresh and then re-engage. It's a withdrawal because I have resentment towards them. I have an issue with them. I want to be apart from them. That's the idea here. These people are now a part of the family of God, and He simply wants them to experience God's wrath. Now, I want to be careful here because you could also be around people all the time. You could even be with people you consider close friends and still be withdrawn from the company of others. We've said it this way before, are you really known by these people? But what, what's happening? What, why the quiet withdrawal? What is he doing? Like what's, let me ask the question this way. Where are his eyes focused? They're on Jonah, right? They're on Jonah. So even I, as I think about withdrawing to refresh, right? To refresh, what ultimately for the purpose of? What? For the purpose of re-engaging. Because if I'm not careful, my eyes can just get focused in on myself for the purpose of myself, to the exclusion of others. So you have this quiet withdrawal from Jonah. Another warning sign. A growing preoccupation with the events of his own life. Oh, the, I, I wrote it this way. The warning sign for us is a growing preoccupation with the events of our own lives. I want to flesh particularly number two out as I walk through this passage. You see, the danger here is that we really don't see what's going on around you. Or, or if you do, you always evaluate everything going on around you based on how it relates to you. I mean, is it for your good or is it for your bad? And that's kind of where the thinking about it stops, right? So it's centered around you, me even. There's a sense of blindness to anything else except what's on your mind or heart or that which affects you. That's what's going on with Jonah. Jonah is blind to what's going on. He's blind to the fact that 120,000 people have now repented and trusting the one single God that Jonah believes is worthy of worship. 
He's blind to this. So much so to the extent that he builds a hut so that he can watch and hopefully watch the destruction of these people. That's just absurd. Let's read on. Verse 6. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Listen, when you read the Scriptures, every word is super important. Every word. I wish we could do like a sermon on every phrase, but we'll be here like we were in Ephesians. Listen, here's what I want you to see. Jonah was pleased with the vine. Hold that thought. Jonah was pleased with the vine. He was pleased with God's shelter from the heat. I'm certain it was better than the shelter that he had with his little mud hut. What I don't want you to miss here is God's sovereign pursuit of Jonah. Don't miss God's sovereign grace in Jonah's utterly rebellious life. So, I don't want to go to Tarshish. We later find out because you're going to grant them repentance. So I'm going to run, I'm sorry, I don't want to go to Nineveh because I know you're going to grant them repentance, so I'm going to run to Tarshish. Then he ends up in Nineveh by God's grace. God pursues him. He ends up in Nineveh. And then he does what God's called him. And now he's back to, God, I'm very unhappy because I knew you would grant them repentance, and now you are doing this. And now I'm angry. And God, once again, in the midst of that rebellion, like, like you need to think of this, he's fleeing to Tarshish again. Like his act of sitting in the hut is him rebelling against God once again. And what does God do? God commands a plant to grow to cover Jonah and put him in the shade. The vine was God's gift. A gift that even brought Jonah comfort, joy, and blessing right here in the midst of his rebellion. Let's read on, verse 7. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. So here's what happens. Then Jonah, right, awakes, anticipating another relatively comfortable day, right, of enjoying the shade from the plant, anticipating the destruction of Nineveh. And the plant disappears just as quickly as it appears. It's gone. Again, see God's sovereign hand appointing a worm. You worm. I like how Paul Tripp said something like this. Worm number 1,999,333 million. I, I said that terribly wrong. Sorry, math people. You eat that plant. 
okay. Right? And he eats the plant. Right? He kills the plant. God takes this away just as quickly as it appeared. And then God <laughs> sovereignly brings what? So he doesn't just take the shade away, but then what's he do? It says that he appoints a scorching east wind so that the sun would beat down upon Jonah's head. I wonder how many of our theology is vast enough to include the idea of God saying, wind, I want you to blow towards that man and cause him great discomfort. The Bible says it. We've got to deal with it. Matter of fact, it says that he, he, sent, he took the plant away via a worm. He sends the scorching wind. The sun beats down on him to the point to which he is faint, it says. Like it's, it's like God adds the, you know, the phrase we use, insult to injury, right? It's like, all right, so you've got to cut there. Let me throw a little bit of alcohol, real, a little bit of salt in it or let me just make sure that you're really getting what's going on here, Jonah. So a scorching east wind comes, the sun beats down on his head to the point of being faint. Jonah, catch this, is unhappy once again. He says this, It's better for me to die than to live. Sound familiar? Just a chapter before? Listen, Jonah is saying that if I could recount a little bit of Jonah's life here, because you showed mercy to the Ninevites, it would be better for me to die than to live. Because you have taken away my shade, my comfort, it would be better for me to die than for me to live. Let me put it in another way. Because, God, you have not done what I want, it would be better for you to once again give me what I want and let me die. Which, notice that God doesn't answer even that request of Jonah at this point. Because you've not given me what I want, God, it would be better for me to die than to live. What in the world is going on with Jonah? I mean, we really have to ask that question because, I mean, this is just absurd. You talk about someone who's experienced God's faithfulness, experienced miracles, right? You hear people say, well, if, I, if God would just show me this miracle, I'd believe. Or what? Listen, Jonah saw it, and Jonah is having a hard time believing. What explains here the anger of Jonah? What's going on? Like, there's this sense in which like, I feel like bad for Jonah, like in a good way, like going like, bro, like what are you thinking? This is... What's going on? Kind of a brokenness for Jonah. Why would you do this? I want you to see that 
since the very beginning of this wonderful little story, God's grace and kindness has been on display wonderfully for our eyes to see. You see on display, really, since the beginning of this story, what has simply been a retelling of the story that has been raging since the beginning of time. Since the very beginning, as Adam and Eve were in the garden, this story is being kind of retold right here in the book of Jonah. You see, the war that landed Satan, destined for eternal destruction, that war, the root of that war is being retold here in the book of Jonah. The war that ultimately resulted in Adam and Eve being removed from God's presence is being retold here in this story. The war that could have ruined even the Abrahamic covenant had it not been for God's resoluteness to keeping the covenant is being retold here in this story. The war that rages in the hearts of each one of us every single day, indeed every single moment, is being retold in this story. The war that with every strategic move determines a heart more in love with God or a heart more resentful towards God is being retold in this story. This war is very simply the battle of this. It's the battle between what I want and what God wants. What do I want? What does God want? That story is being retold in this book, in this little story. Another way of saying this is it's the war between the kingdom of self and the kingdom of God. That's what you see with Satan. That's what you see with Adam and Eve. That's what you see with Abraham as he tries to take the covenant into his own hands. It's the war that you and I experience every day, all day long. Many times extremely blind to it. It's the war between the kingdom of self and the kingdom of God. You see, what we learn from this book is that we must fight the most important fight. The war between the kingdom of self and the kingdom of God. So do you, you, you want to view the world rightly? Like, you want to have a worldview that understands what's going on in your little life, your home, with your kids, with your spouse, with your friends, with your co-workers? with your money, with your finances, the way you spend your time. You want to understand the world rightly. This needs to be our filter. We don't understand every moment of every day, every word, every action, every emotion is driven by one of these two kingdoms at all times. Kingdom of self, every desire of your heart is driven by either the kingdom of self or the kingdom of God. This is what explains what is going on in Jonah's heart at this point. It explains what's been going on in Jonah's heart since the very beginning. 
Let me ask you a question. How do you define spiritual warfare? How do you talk about spiritual warfare? How do you engage in that conversation if you even do? Talk about demons and angels and etc. How do you how do you engage in the idea of spiritual warfare? I'm not saying that thinking about demons and angels that that's wrong. But I would say if the primary way in which you talk about spiritual warfare is demons and angels, you're very blind. That's, that's the, the primary war, the primary battle that's going on is not in that, in those kinds of terms. The primary battle, the primary war that's going on is the battle between these two things. My personal plan for me, my wants, my self-determined needs, my feelings versus God's holy grand purpose for me as a part of His kingdom. That's spiritual warfare. Oftentimes, we, you know, we talk about Satan oftentimes as though like all of this is on him. I, I mean, as I read the scriptures, no talk about Satan. It's all about Jonah and his fleshly self wanting something other than what God wants. Could there be demons and angels at work in the middle? Yeah, well, probably so. But that's not the concern. The concern is what's going on in Jonah's heart. You see, like what Paul Tripp said, the battle of what will rule your heart is fought on the turf of your heart. What is ruling Jonah of every day? You see, what is ruling Jonah Right? If we ask the question, what is ruling Jonah's heart? Right? So it's, it's this kingdom of self. But what's ruling his heart in this kingdom of self is his happiness. The plan of God was uncomfortable for Jonah. Made him unhappy. The calling of God was uncomfortable. The results were uncomfortable. The sun was, what's it say? Uncomfortable. Now, let me, let me caveat this carefully. It wasn't bad for Jonah to want comfort. But as Tripp says much better than I could say, a desire for something good becomes a bad thing when it becomes a ruling thing. You see, it wasn't bad for Jonah to want comfort. It was bad for Jonah to want comfort more than God's plan. It was bad for Jonah to be controlled by his comfort instead of being controlled by God. Let me ask you this question. What makes you happy? Just looking back, what makes you happy? What makes you unhappy? Listen to my qualifiers carefully. These are likely indicators of your expression of the kingdom of self. Listen, we, we know, I think from the Old Testament, particularly from the New Testament, that, that we're to be ruled by nothing other than Christ. 
We're to be ruled by nothing other than Christ. And the reality is, if we're not ruled by King Jesus, we will be ruled by self. When ruled by the kingdom of self, what we often do as good Christians is we take good things, turn them into ruling things, as we submit to them as pleasure things. We take good things and we make them into, the way Timothy Keller says it, we make them into ultimate things. Like they control me. If I don't have that, I can't be happy. If I don't have that, I can't be fulfilled. If I don't have that, I can't go on with life. If I don't have that, I'm going to be angry. And if that that is anything other than Jesus Christ, then you have taken a thing and made it greater than the creator of such things. The entire book of Jonah is about this issue. Jonah's kingdom versus God's kingdom. And what God does here for Jonah is just awesome and amazing. God creates an object lesson for Jonah. Like right here, brings it down to Jonah's level. Like, look, let me show you something, Jonah. Let me care for you where you're at, Jonah. He creates this object lesson. He brings the plant, the worm, the wind, the sun. They're all meant to expose Jonah's kingdom struggle. God orchestrates. He harnesses the forces of nature to say, Jonah, let me show you what's going on in your heart. Don't miss God's grace. How often do we sit there having the plant taken away, the winds beating up against us, scorching heat, and the sun beating down our head, and we think, wow, God, you are revealing something in my heart. Please show me what it is. You are trying to set me free to love you more than the things of this world. What is it? What do we typically do, right? How can I find some more shade? <laughs> right? How can I fix the holes in my hutch or my hut? How can I How can I block the wind a little bit better? I just joy Why does Jonah want to die? Why does he want to die? Here's why. Because he didn't get his self-centered way. Jonah wanted to die because Jonah didn't get what Jonah wanted. Why did Jonah go to Tarshish? Because he didn't want what God wanted. Why was Jonah angry at God? Because Jonah didn't get what Jonah wanted. Why is Jonah angry at the at the the taking away of the plant? Because Jonah didn't like we, what Jonah wanted. Like we, we I want to give you a, a, a kind of a quick disclaimer here. We have to be careful because we could even say that what we want is for the good of other people, like our families. This is a particular danger there. When really what we want, we want for them is ultimately just for us. We can use them as cover-ups for really just wanting what we want. Again, and, and I'm, I'm not saying that what we want for them is not, 
is not maybe not uh, good. I'm sure it's good. But do we want it just so that we can be happy? Or do we want it because this is what God wants and we desire what God wants? Again, understand that our wanting to die, as Jonah here wants to die, it may not be like a literal us wanting to die, but there's a, maybe a sense of that. Or maybe it's a simple like resolve to joylessness. Well, I'm just going to sit here and pity myself. Maybe that's what our wanting to die looks like. Let me be real honest with you. And I, I know this is going to hurt some toes, but Tripp uh, said this. He goes, oftentimes our despair is simply a result of not getting our way. Like life doesn't look like it's possible because God is getting His way and we are not. I want you to ponder that. Notice the qualifiers, right? Oftentimes. So I'm not saying that all despair is always because, I, I don't want to get into that. I, what I want you to see is that oftentimes our despair is just very simply because God's getting what He wants and we're not getting what we want. You know, those times we're like controlled by our emotions. We're just distraught and can't, still, we just don't like what just happened, right? Did you hear the cause in the way I just described it? Listen, it happened exactly the way God wanted it to. It was exactly according to His plan. He got what He wanted. The despair of Jonah, listen, is not because his life is unlivable or that God isn't good. The despair of Jonah is because God is getting his way and Jonah isn't getting his. Important fight. The root of all our struggle with loving God. You see, the most important fight, the root of all our struggle with loving God versus resenting him is this battle between the kingdom of self and the kingdom of God. Let's read on. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Listen to the absurdity of this. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, or did, or, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. How does God respond to Jonah? God greets him with wise, loving, patient counsel. God tells Jonah, here's what God's telling Jonah right here, that your problem isn't with me. The problem is with what you value most in your heart, Jonah. That's your problem. You're having this little pity party in your little mud hut to the east of the city. Because what's Jonah been saying? I'm angry at you, God, because you did this. 
And what's God saying to Jonah? It's not with me. The issue's in your own heart. Think about this in parenting. How many times my child will get angry at me for doing something that's righteous on his behalf? Listen, so you're not angry at me. Your problem is not with me. Your problem is with what's inside your heart. It's that you're not getting what you want, and Daddy is. It's revealed here that Jonah, listen to this, cares more about his comfort. He values more his comfort than he does the souls of 120,000 people. My, how we need to hear this in the church in America today. The moment God exposes the value in the heart of Jonah, it's meant to help us with a window into the values of our own hearts. Let me ask you this question. If you had a wonderful day, if you had a wonderful day, is it because God got His way or is it because you got your way? When you think about your wonderful days at the end of the day, why was it wonderful? Is it because what you valued in your heart was matched, was reached, was met? Or because God got His way? When you're angry, is it because God got His way and you didn't get yours? For me, it is most of the time. God says to Jonah and says to us today, won't you just look at the values of your heart one more time? Look there one more time. Spend a few more moments looking at what you value most. He says to Jonah, you love the comfort of your plan more than my plan of redemption. Should pity the plant. Should I not pity the people of Nineveh? We face this, I face this all the time. Many times in counseling, both, both formal and informal counseling situations, uh, much of what we deal with in people's lives would be solved if people simply cared more about God's plan of redemption than their petty little self-centered kingdoms. I'm not trying to be mean or harsh, but that's the reality. Why am I upset? Why am I upset? The answer always is, because I didn't get my way. But just look at God's love and care for Jonah. Like, listen, I want, you to see this. I want you to see this. Without God's work, Jonah would resent God for all of eternity. You see, God saves His children from the destructive kingdom of self. This is what God does. This has been the battle since the beginning. This has been the war that's been raging. This is what was solved at the cross. This kingdom of self defeated once and for all. 
set free from that kingdom. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself here. God used the worm and the wind, hear me, to save Jonah from a self-centered life. He used the worm, the wind, the heat, the, 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 the discomfort to rescue Jonah from the self-centered life. You say, well, but it doesn't resolve that way. I think ultimately it resolves that way. I think Jonah is writing this further down his journey. He's not, I don't think this is his journal as he's suffering. I think he's retelling the story. But he, uses, he sends these to rescue Jonah ultimately. Listen, a self-centered life is what? Someone so preoccupied with their selfish desires, the ones of their own kingdom, that they can't see the glorious kingdom of God. Can't see it. We all struggle with this, myself very much included. And remember, our selfish desires can be like good things, like what we desire to happen can be a, a great thing. But when it becomes a ruling thing, that's when it becomes a problem. You see, we need to realize this, that the kingdom of self will always seem temporarily satisfying. It will always seem temporarily satisfying. It will always relieve the pain a little bit. Do you hear me? It will always take it away for a moment. You see, listen, it's not just the alcoholics that drown their sorrows. It's the Christian who takes a good thing and makes it a ruling thing and satisfies themselves temporarily. You're just as sinful as the alcoholic drowning away their sorrows through something else. That wasn't in my notes. That was, that was free. Listen, the vine, listen, this, the vine seemed to dissipate the anger, right? It seemed to satisfy, it seemed to calm Jonah's anger, right? He was what? He was happy. He was satisfied. He was comforted. The vine, God sent the vine. But what did it do? It only hid the anger. It only shadowed it for a moment. Christians often struggle with erratic joy because then worship of the kingdom of self never actually listen, Christians dealt with and struggle with erratic joy because the worship of the kingdom of self never actually gets dealt with. It only gets overshadowed by temporary joy from the delights of our flesh. Like we, we just we get in such a frenzy to change the circumstances so quick. Instead of just stopping and going, okay, Lord. What makes you worthy of worship right now? I've been asked that multiple times from a dear friend of mine. Call him and say, man, I'm just having a hard time with this. I need help thinking through this. Well, what? Why is God worthy of worship right now? And then proceeding to sift through, by the graces of God, what's going on in our hearts. 
This is why sin oftentimes doesn't get dealt with. What happens is God applies heat through the various life situations, right? He sends the storm. And what's hidden in our hearts comes out through our emotions, our actions, our thoughts, our words. And those involuntary responses, right? Because out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The actions go. But out of the overflow of the heart, these things come. They're involuntary, if you will. And I think that's a grace of God to us. But oftentimes, instead of dealing with what's coming to the surface, we turn ultimately to satisfy the kingdom of self. And then the heart never gets dealt with. You see what happens when the vine was destroyed. What happens in the story? Jonah's anger resurfaces. It resurfaces, but it resurfaces with new vigor and focus. So it's not even that it just kind of stayed the same, right? His resentment gets worse. It grows because it wasn't dealt with. He says very emphatically in verse 9, Yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. See Jonah's newfound resoluteness in his sin. Jonah was trapped in deep-seated resentment towards God. The vine only masked the problem for a moment. But that's why God sent it. God sent it to take it away. He sends the plant so that He can turn around and take it away in order to go, alright Jonah, what's right there? It's back again. Let's deal with it the right way. See God's grace in that, right? It's not God just being mean. It's not God in the, you know, the movie Bruce Almighty. He's not just trying to smite Jonah. Smite me, Almighty Smiter. Do you remember that phrase from that movie? He's not just doing that. Some of you are like, just, it's just lost on you. Sorry. That's how I feel most of the time when someone else makes a cultural reference. He was angry enough to die. He wanted, at this moment, the vine so much. That without it, life wasn't worth living. Like, that's the point. That without this vine, life isn't worth living. I mean, think of the absurdity of that. The God who rescued him through the belly of a fish. Never mind the fact that you are awesome, God, and did all of that. My life's not worth living because you took this plant away from me. You and I do the same thing. I guarantee you there's not a day that we don't do the same thing. And what we also learn here in Jonah is that the kingdom of self gives way to the kingdom of God as we grow in communion with Christ by loving Him more as we savor the depth of His love first for us. I changed it. The way it's up on the screen is the right way. I changed it from the way it is in your notes. FYI. Let me say it again. The kingdom of self gives way to the kingdom of God as we grow in communion with Christ by loving Him more as we savor the depth of His love for us.
Let me, let, me, let me move on. The forsaking of the kingdom of self and the embracing of the kingdom of God is not just a light bulb that you and I can flip on as if it's connected to some kind of switch. I want to remind you, 1 John 4.19 says this, We love because why? He first loved us. What is it we love? We ultimately love God and then love other people. Another way you could say this is we are about the kingdom of God. Why? Because He first sought after us to be a part of His kingdom. You see this all throughout Jonah. Jonah is being rescued not because he's loving God, but because God has set his heart on loving Jonah. You see this story retold and retold here in the book of Jonah. Listen, the more you see God's love for you, the more you will grow in loving Him. Paul says this in Ephesians. Go back and reread these verses. Re-study them. Re-listen to the sermon. Paul says that I want you to know the depth and length and height and breadth of Christ's love for you. Why? Because Paul understands that as we know God's love for us, we will be turned towards love for Him. One pastor I read this week said this, Think about Christ at this moment. What was the vine that brought Him comfort, blessing, and joy? Just go back. These are not the only answers to this question, but what vine brought Jesus comfort, blessing, and joy? When were the times that Jesus describes Himself as being joyful, and why was He joyful? You see in Mark 3 that He's joyful because of the companionship He has with the disciples. You see in Luke 10... Satan falling like lightning. And you see how Jesus' heart is filled with joy through the Holy Spirit. He goes on to say this, but then the worm comes in Jesus' life. The disciples, they all forsook Him and fled. Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss. Peter denied him. Jesus is plunged into sorrow and loss. And then what was the east wind? What's this look like in Christ's life? Not only deserted, but Jesus is is mocked and crowned with thorns. He was nailed to the cross. Plunged into darkness, the Scriptures tell us. Even in His affliction, He says, My God, my God, why have You forsaken me? Here's what I want you to see. Christ endured the worm. He endured the wind all of it, trusting in the Father, resting in the Father, hoping in the Father, depending on the Father. 
so that you and I could be brought under the eternal care of God the Father. You know that plant-like shade? The comfort and the blessing of that plant-like shade? Jesus endured eternal all so that you and I can be brought into the plant-like shade of God's eternal care. And sit there under His care, not because we're enslaved to the pleasures of self and even the comfort of the shade, but we sit there in the comfort of the Father because we're thankful and in love with the Father Himself. As you think about the unanswered questions of your life, as this one pastor this week said, think about the great unanswered question that rose from the darkness and agony of your Savior's suffering. He says, my God, why? Think about that question. And then the heavens remain dark and silent as Christ suffered. But in the darkness and through the unanswered why, what does Christ do? He loves and trusts the Father still. Understand, on the cross, Jesus could have said, angels come get me now. And they would have obeyed Him. So His act of not doing that His act of staying there in the darkness is Him saying, Father, I trust You. What's He saying in light of Jonah? Father, I want Your plan. That's what I want. Jesus moved towards the difficult calling of God. God's kingdom and He moved towards the place of God's presence and God's grace. I mean, think about the grace he had to experience to proceed through the cross. And God's grace, like like God's work in the man Christ Jesus. When it was finished, Jesus says, into your hands I commit my spirit And with that, he splintered the gates of hell. Listen, Jonah serves to show us that the very foundational issue in all of our struggles, and whether we submit moment by moment to the kingdom of self or to the kingdom of God, Jonah shows us what this looks like. Ultimately, Jonah doesn't show us what success looks like. He shows us the Father's commitment to success and what that looks like. Jesus shows us what commitment moment by moment to the Father looks like. He shows us that that perfect commitment to the Father moment by moment as He thinks about to the kingdom of God moment by moment to the point where He can say that as He thinks about Himself that now to you listening to me the kingdom of God is upon you. Jesus is so in tune with God's kingdom that He can say this. 
He shows us what that looks like. He lives that when we couldn't, which is all the time. And by His blood, He washes us and invites us into that kingdom. And you and I stand before the Father as citizens of His kingdom. Why? Because of His bringing us into abiding in His Son, Jesus. The one who did live moment by moment. Listen, we will choose God's kingdom moment by moment as we savor the incredible grace and mercy of God shown to us through His Son. This grace lives shown to us through His Son, His Son Jesus, as He trusts the Father, as He lives perfectly for the Father, even to the point of the cross. So how do we, here's, let's back up for a second. How do we deal with this kingdom of self versus the kingdom of God? What's the solution to that problem? It's the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus. Why? Because he has set you free from that kingdom. He has set you free from the destruction of that kingdom. He has set you free to see the glory of God's kingdom. He works in His children's life to bring about repentance and faith. Not just only justification, but every day as you and I turn from the kingdom of self. The only way you and I turn from the kingdom of self is through the blood of Jesus onto the kingdom of God. As we look forward to the summer, Starting in two weeks, we're going to talk about gospel fluency. What's it mean? Like, what's it really practically look like to depend on the good news of Jesus every day? And I just want to encourage you that right here, this is the heart of this battle. The heart of this battle is whether or not I'll surrender the kingdom of God or the kingdom of self. How do I do that? It's only through the grace of God, it's only through the gospel. Jesus Christ. I pray that Jonah, even today, has been used to shape and change your heart's affections. That you love God more, that you turn from self more and turn to God. Let's pray. Gracious, kind, merciful Father, thank you for sending your servant Jonah even through all the turmoil of his life and all of the pain and suffering of his life, in order to show us what our lives look like, like that we, we see this, we can see how you work in our lives, but, but also to foreshadow the coming of one who would not go to Tarshish, but would go to Nineveh. Who would not desire the destruction of God's people but instead give up his life for the salvation of God's people. His name is Jesus. Father, may we see, may we savor your kindness, your love for us demonstrated 
and the sacrifice of your son Jesus. May we see its climax even at the cross. May we see your mark of salvation and the work of your son Jesus in the resurrection. Please give us eyes to see your love for us, that we would turn in repentance to you. In Jesus' name, amen.